Attention listeners, ahead are spoilers. Hello and welcome to the Movie Trap. I am Russell Carlson and with me as always, Chris Boroff. Hello. And I am also joined by Zach Power. Uh, just having an old-fashioned girls' pot party. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on the movie trap, one person picks a theme, and each of the three hosts picks a movie based on that theme. Each host starts with 10 points uh, to use to vote on which movie wins the theme, which will happen to be this particular episode. So good news for everybody. Plus, we even have a chance to increase our voting power by gaining bonus points from each other. Once we've watched all three movies, which we are doing today, uh, we will use our points to vote which movie wins the theme. Whoever host picks the movie that won the theme gets to pick the next theme. Previously on The Movie Trap, we did the alien abduction story of communion chosen by Chris Borf, but not really Chris Borf because the theme is our significant others choose the movie for whatever reason they choose. So we were kind enough to be joined by uh, Borf's wife, Sarah. And uh, this time was my choice, but not really my choice. It is the choice of my much better two thirds, Sarah Meloff. Sarah, why don't you say hi to everybody out there? Hello, everyone. She is joining right next to me for those of you listening at home, uh, cramped up in our very small couch. Um, so, uh, before we get down to what movie we're choosing, let me give a little rundown of the points for the viewers at home. As of now, Chris Boroff has 12 points to divvy out at the end and has one bonus point to divvy out. I, Russell, have 11 points, uh, because Sarah was kind enough to give me the pity point and I have one more bonus point to divvy out. Zach has a whopping 14 points to divvy out in final voting and still two bonus points to give out. Um, so that brings us to today's film. Sarah, why don't you tell everybody what you chose? You chose... 925. The 1980 <laughs> comedy classic, 925. Um, I was going to try to start out with like the piano riff when I was introducing the show, but then I thought... You know, we already have a hard enough time getting viewers. Yeah. Um, so why do that? It's impossible to say the title without singing it, though. Or at least I find it impossible. It yeah. is a lot easier uh, to say it. Mm -hmm. I should have at the top probably said something about a cup of ambition. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, this movie uh, is declares early on that it is based on the song, though. Unless I have been listening to the song wrong, there's a lot of parts uh, that don't seem to correlate to the lyrics particularly closely. <laughs> it, it feels as though maybe they had the song and then they had a movie and they maybe made them work together so they could have a really good hit song. That's what I'm guessing from the yeah, song. Yeah, based on seems pretty generous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> it is indeed about people working in a, a right. nine to five job. <laughs> right. And, and your boss is a pain in the ass. I mean, that, yeah. Coffee is involved. That's true. <laughs> uh, yes, yes it is. Uh, so, Zach, why keep this going any longer? Let's go ahead and punch in and join the shift of typing and answering phones of 9 to 5. Uh, yeah. So, 9 to 5 is a 1980 movie directed by Colin Higgins, uh, who also wrote Harold and Maude, uh, but didn't, uh, otherwise, I don't think you'd know a lot of his other work uh, particularly well. 
It stars Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Dolly Parton, as well as Dabney Coleman. And the basic premise is uh, the movie starts following Judy, who is Jane Fonda's character, on her first day of work after her husband uh, has left her following an affair he had with his secretary. Look, how am I ever going to get out of this mailroom prison if they keep hiring people from the outside? Lady, you're going to hate it here. She works for a place called Consolidated, which does business. Uh, they don't really, it's just one of these workplaces that does business. There's a middle management woman she works under, uh, played by Lily Tomlin, named Violet. She's very willing and she needs the job. She's recently divorced. So, and I'm a widow with four kids. Jerry should never have died. I could, I'd be better off. I could have divorced him. All under the uh, watchful eye of uh, Franklin Hart Jr., or honestly not so watchful. He seems like kind of a slothful dude who's uh, kind of a dick and uh, is the top dog in charge of this particular floor of Consolidated. Well, thank you. This sir. is your floor. You'll run it as you please. <laughs> going up, girls? No, we're going down. Uh, he has a personal secretary named Dora Lee, who is played by Dolly Parton. Um, that he is clearly infatuated with and has apparently started spreading rumors that he is sleeping with. Movie begins with, you know, Judy is starting her her career. She's a little nervous about it. And over the course of the day, uh, we get a kind of look at this oppressive office environment. No coffee on the desks. An insane rule, by the way. Um, no personal effects. You know, it's... Very straightforward to the point and gray and dull and drab. Hart, like, very openly uh, sexually harasses Dolly Parton in his office. Uh, probably not for the first time. And, uh, and Violet is in line for a big promotion as well. Uh, during that same day, Judy uh, sort of has a run-up with him uh, in which she fails to control the Xerox machine very well. Which and is the he, size of a house. Yeah, by it's the huge. Way. Uh, yeah. This is a 1980s Xerox machine. It looks like a prop from like 2001: A Space Odyssey. And the scene um, plays out like something that would have been in uh, I Love Lucy. It's a very over the top. It is a very I Love Lucy movie. That's a yeah. That that's a recurring theme in this movie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, though, uh, when Hart discovers that the Xerox machine is out of control, he like threatens to fire her if she doesn't get her shit under control, and basically calls her a moron. I know what to do now, sir. You do? Well, then I suggest you do it. On your first day will be your last. Do you understand that? Yes, sir. All right, now clean this mess up and get back to work. Yes, sir. Um, so the scene ends with her, like, sort of crying at work, which is, you know, sad and everything. I mean, um, who hasn't cried at work, guys? Well, to be fair, yeah, yeah, I to suppose be fair, that's true. Yeah, yeah. That's why they call it work. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and who can't relate to, it's my first day and I'm terrified and now my boss is screaming at me. Mm-hmm. Horrifying. Mm-hmm. I'm not your wife or your mother or even your mistress. What? Mm-mm. I am your employee and as such I expect to be treated equally with a little dignity and a little respect. What do you mean, mistress? Come off it, for God's sake. The whole company knows you two are having an affair. Who's been saying we're having an affair? Who's been saying it? He has. What? So, uh, yeah, obviously, Dorley figures out that he's been spreading these rumors. Um, she obviously is aware that he's been sexually harassing her. Um, and uh, Violet is passed over for the promotion, 
with the flimsy excuse that uh, the dude that was hired instead is, I mean, it comes down to the fact that he was a man, even though there's a few, you know, sort of false excuses before that. Violet has picked up a joint from her son. <laughs> well, um, gotta relax. I'm gonna roll you a joint. <laughs> and uh, when the three women head down to the bar to commiserate about their bad luck with heart, they decide to have an old-fashioned pot party during which they have a series of fantasies about uh, getting their revenge on uh, Hart. Uh, each has a particular uh, fantasy. Judy wants to hunt him down in the office with a gun. Um, uh, Dora Lee wants to sort of turn the tables and sexually harass him before hog tying him in the middle of the office. Uh, and Violet just wants to straight up poison his coffee before dumping him out the office window to his death. Um, in the style of sort of, each of them has a different style. The first is like sort of a black and white. It starts yeah. as kind of a monster movie. It's kind of like Night of the Hunter. Is like yeah, a little bit like that. Thought. Yeah. The second is a Western sort of kind of. Like and a the Roy third Rogers one. Western, not like a Peckinpah Western. Mm -hmm. And the third one is very much a, <laughs> the third one is very much a Disney movie. It's like taking a lot of cues from Snow White in the third one. Yeah. But I, love, I love the murderous Snow White. Like Disney, but legally distinct from Disney. I think that that's yeah. very important to notice. It, it also yeah. continues the 80s trope of they got a little high. Woo. Now they're hallucinating and suddenly everyone's into violence. <laughs> Although they do make a shit ton of food. Well, I have just wrecked my diet, but I love good barbecue, don't you? and seem yeah. to enjoy it very much. Yeah. From one joint. Oh, yeah. Hell of they a also, they, they have a lot of drinks, they have a lot of pot, and they play with Dolly Parton's gun. It's a, it's a great <laughs> night, I guess. Uh, regardless, the next day, uh, because Dorley is out of the office taking care of something else, uh, Hart, as always, calls on Violet to act as his secretary, even though she is obviously like a much, you know, a different job. Um, but she has no choice but to comply. She goes to make his coffee and uh, accidentally pours in the very similar looking box of rat poison instead of the artificial sweetener. Um, she takes it to him, but before she realizes her mistake, he incidentally uh, falls out of his chair, which has been kind of not working the entire run of the movie and hits mm. his head, knocking him unconscious. Uh, Violet believes that probably what happened is she poisoned him as he has rushed to the emergency room. So they follow him there. She tells Judy and Dora Lee about the incident, and due to an extreme coincidence, a separate man is wheeled into the same room as Hart, who has been poisoned and does die. Hart gets up. He's fine. No real he, he problem. Leaves. He leaves. He demands to leave. He yeah, says, he I'm, leaves I'm not, yeah. Yeah, without telling anybody. Um, so they steal this unrelated body, thinking it's heart, and that this will cover up their murder. Uh, accidental, I guess it's a manslaughter case in this uh, particular uh, incident. They take him to the quarry to uh, dump him into, <laughs> into the ravine, never to be seen again, before realizing it's not the same guy and uh, bring the body back to the hospital where they dump it in the bathroom. Well, what about the other matter? Don't worry about it. It's been taken care of. Hey, Vera, we got another stip in the jar. 
seemingly out of trouble. The following day, when in the company bathroom, they discuss their misadventures from the previous night, all while um, Hart's assistant Roz uh, is hiding in one of the stalls with her feet up, taking notes on toilet paper. Uh, she immediately rats them out to Hart, who uh, immediately calls in Dora Lee and is like, I'm going to use this information to blackmail you into sleeping with me. <laughs> um, Dora Lee refuses and instead uh, ties him up with uh, a phone cord. Uh, and calls in Judy to keep watch on him. This gives Judy the opportunity to point a gun at him when he tries to escape. Uh, she even fires a few shots through the window. Um, so now all of their respective fantasies have in some way come to fruition. Um, <laughs> and uh, they ultimately decide the only thing they can do is kidnap him, take him back to his house. His wife is conveniently out of town. Um they create this uh, sort of elaborate contraption to keep him tied up there. It, it looks um, like something out of a saw out, film. It looks like it's a torture device and he's yeah. about to be cut in half. That's what it looks like, but it's a zany hijink comedy, yeah. so no one actually gets killed. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. essentially a garage door opener. But mm -hmm. like, they kind of subtext that earlier in the film with Lily Tomlin repairing it so she knows her way around the toolbox. Yeah, uh, they discover at his home that uh, at a certain warehouse outside of town, a bunch of business things have disappeared <laughs> and Hart is profiting from them illegally in a businessy fashion. If they can just get the business papers, they can prove that Hart did illegal business things and blackmail him into not pressing charges. So they need to get the papers from uh, uh, somewhere else, another branch. Um, but in this deeply inefficient business, that's going to take like a fucking month. <laughs> so basically they start having this elaborate scheme where nobody ever sees Hart, but they pretend he's in and around the office. Um, all while uh, implementing a bunch of reforms to make the workplace better. Uh you know, flexible start times, uh, a nursery, um, you know, personal items on the desk, that sort of thing. Uh, and they send Roz away uh, to to uh, Paris for a language training seminar to get him off their tail. One night, uh, Judy, who is staying at heart as kind of his captor, her husband turns up. He's been stalking her for, I guess, a few days before showing up. One thing leads to another. He discovers Hart uh, tied up upstairs with uh, his mouth gagged and assumes that she's been having like a very, you know, kinky sort of B&M sort of affair with him. So that's what you're into now. Bondage. What's that? Bondage, S&M, sex games. That's right. All of it. I'm into everything. Now get out of here. Judy finds the courage to break it off with him once and for all. And yeah. I like that Hart's... Hart's mouth only has like a little like tissue in it. Like he could easily have spit it out, but no. Yeah, yeah uh, gags work in a way in movies that don't. They do not work in real life. That's a recurrent thing that right. I've seen before. Yeah, I, with the exception of like Pulp Fiction, and that was speaking yeah. of S and M. Um, anyway. Yeah. Um, 
Sir, um, Shannon did compare him to the Gimp in Pulp Fiction while we were watching the movie. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it does play, but it's like such a quiet, like mundane version of SM where no one looks like it's that sexy. Nothing really looks that kinky, except he has like okay. a, uh, a leather choke chain. I think that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. Or like it a, looks like yeah, maybe he's a, a in a sex swing because he's dangling yeah. from the ceiling. Yeah. yeah. Regardless, she breaks up with her ex husband, who obviously had an affair with her and seems like kind of a scumbag uh, once and for all. Um, but uh, unbeknownst to them a few days later Hart's wife comes home early and uh, is able to you know he's able to get free thanks to that and uh, undo his evil business things putting everything back in the business warehouse where they're supposed to be meaning they no longer have leverage over him when they come back to the house he's there takes him by gunpoint back to the office uh, and it's time to send him to prison. Well, you've won. You've trumped our race. So what are you going to do now? Oh, I'm sorry, Violet. Why, why don't you sit down? Sit down over there. I'm just getting ready to play my last card. I'm going to send you three bitches to jail. This is all thrown into disarray when Russell Tinsworthy, the company chairman, shows up and, deci- and says that the recent changes implemented by the three women have increased productivity by like 20% in just a few weeks. He's extremely impressed and says, I'm giving you a promotion, Hart. You're going to go work in Brazil for three years, and I'm not taking no for an answer. And so Violet is promoted to Hart's job, as we learn in a uh, an ending sort of Animal yeah. House-esque series yeah. of like what happened to them next moments. Judy uh, marries a Xerox repairman. Dora Lee becomes a country and western singer. Shocker! Wank, uh-huh. wank. Yeah. And Hart is presumably murdered by a tribe in Brazil. They handle the entire end of his arc too, uh, much like the scene earlier with him in the S&M swing, where all he has to do is speak up and he just doesn't. And they send him all the way to Brazil because he's just like, oh, what, 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 what? Well, it's, a, it's implied that he wants to take credit for the positive changes, but then the comeuppance is ironically that he has to go to Brazil, I guess with a pay increase, but also... Just give up his life. Yeah, right. Um, apparently, apparently, the business that they're op- opening up into is like within indigenous tribes, and that's what the business that they're doing in there. Even though Brazil, even in 1980, still pretty a fucking modern place yeah. for most part. The whole last little bit of the movie is like, um, and this is you know this is a movie where a lot of it is run on extreme coincidence. And also at the end, the resolution comes about from like a very, very clear deus ex machina. Like it's the most like thing comes out of absolutely fucking nowhere to solve the problem at the last possible yeah. second thing. In this case, and maybe any movie we've watched so far. Yeah, yeah well, Sterling, at least Sterling with, Hayden with, just busting in, right? Yeah, yeah. right. Love, love, he did great, too. I mean, it's one of his last movies. You could tell the guy had to be kind of shepherded around because he was pretty up there in age. But I, I will say, at least with um, with the Dabney Coleman's character, with the Hart character not alerting his boss or whatever, what's just happened to him, it, it, they already did establish the guy has no shame when it comes to stealing ideas from Lily Tomlin. That's true. And taking credit for it. I mean, the, 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 the handkerchief in the mouth, that one's an obvious one. But that is, again, a movie trope that mm-hmm. is so common in th- movies, it's barely a sin. This is a movie that... Um... I, I I was thinking while I was watching it that it does 
Back in college, there were many a hungover Sunday where Sarah and I watched movies together. Indeed. Um, and this feels like I could tell like, oh, this is the way I'd never seen this one before. Like, this is a Sarah kind of movie. It, it feels is. like a movie in the way like certain movies from the 80s and 90s feel like movies while you're watching them. And they can yeah. be good and they can be bad. But My Cousin Vinny, which I know you love, feels like a movie. And Shawshank Redemption feels like a fucking movie to me in the same way this does. I totally agree. There's something about that era of movies that I would have grown up with that I just adore. I think the comedies are all they all have that goofy, overly convenient setup for everything. And the dramas are like heartfelt and kind of end with a happy moment. Like, I don't have to worry about being depressed for days. I just like that era. Yeah. But especially the comedies, things like My Cousin Vinny, Christmas Vacation that you guys watch. These yeah. are literally my favorite movies of it's all time. It's the kind of movie that would play on like USA or TBS or something a lot uh, right. 15 years ago, 20 mm-hmm. years ago. Something like what that. I think is a little interesting about this movie is, well, obviously it's that goofy slapsticky comedy. It also is like kind of dark humor with the weird murder fantasies that come true and then i also think it kind of has that like clever we're commenting on society jokes as well you know this one's definitely like second wave feminism is kind of the thing that hit me when i was watching this because it's like ladies in the workplace uh a lot of people that were recently going through divorces having to go back into the workplace which was like a novel concept I know my grandfather at the time uh, kept using all sorts of colorful language to describe women that he heard on Rush Limbaugh because they were going into the workplace and he thought it was strange, even though my oh, my own mother was tread. in the workplace. Rest in peace. Rest, to, in, uh, yeah, rest in peace to an yeah. American icon. Rush but, uh, but Medal I would, of Freedom recipient. This is very... I, I genuinely think that they had to choose Dolly Parton or someone like Dolly Parton to make this palatable to conservatives at the time. And not just, I mean, obviously Jane Fonda is like a liberal icon. Lily Tomlin is known for like liberal humor. Like I, they had to get like a country girl that middle America would be okay with. I think there's things that for 1980 are, are pretty progressive about this movie, which we've started talking about. One thing I think that would be different today, and this would also be different in uh, the 1988 movie Scrooged, which has a similar scene, is you ain't going to have a scene of somebody hunting somebody down in the office with a gun, I think, in 2021. Yeah, Yeah. probably true. Uh, Yeah, I think that one might have even been uh, I think that that might have been an issue at the time, if I'm not mistaken. But they also show it in terms of like old timey movie stuff. Like, none of the violence or danger in this ever feel really serious. It's like, it's all heightened, uh, but most of the really dark stuff is all just due to a misunderstanding. Like, they yeah. didn't actually kill their boss. You kind of get your, get your cake and eat it too with this one, because it's like, they go through things as though they had killed the boss, so you could imagine what a really dark version of this movie right. is. That was apparently a struggle from the concept, from even from conceptual point of view. I mean, Jane Fonda wanted to do this kind of movie. This was one of her first of her own production company that she set up. So she really wanted to do this kind of women in the workplace kind of movie. And, you know, she loved the idea of women getting together and killing their boss. So apparently early drafts of the script were pretty dark, like Uh, a a lot more darker and focused more on the murder. You say dark. I I don't know. Like 
here's how I think it would be if they'd killed the boss. It would be a business place version of Weekend at Bernie's. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, no, I mean, they, they would still have the whole kidnapping, but they would actually attempt to murder him. Like, oh, unlike, unlike the. So what changed was like it kind of turns into like this kind of sitcom comedy of errors sort of mistake thing, you know, and then Lily Tolman just fucking loses it and pulls the body out of the hospital. You know, like that's such a kind of a sitcom trope because like it makes sense at the time. And, you know, Lily Tolman's and Jane Fonda wanted to make it a comedy because she wanted to work with Lily Tomlin and Lily Tomlin was going to the only way you'd put Lily Tomlin in a movie in 1980 was to make it a comedy. Um, and and yeah, so like it was really about Lily Tomlin and Fonda wanted making it a comedy. So I, I kind of think you could see the bones of a much darker kind of tone in this story that then just kind of gets glossed over with the sort of, like I said, sitcom sort of humor. Yeah, this is a it's a weird thing to like talk about it this way. I'll actually give uh, Zach a point too because he managed to say something casually that now uh, comes to bear in the conversation. Um, this movie's a lot like The Hangover, the movie The Hangover, where it's a it's a movie set up dealing with consequences of like briefly losing uh, faculty, where they get a little high and then they think they've killed someone and then they take a big chunk of the movie to solve it, but. The weird thing with this one is that flip where it's like it goes from like, well, we didn't really kill him, but now he's still imperiled and we've kidnapped him. So it's almost like a separate uh, separate thread to the story starts, whereas like something like The Hangover just zeroed in on that first chunk of the story. And they're like, this is what the whole movie is going to be. Uh, also, it didn't have any of the like the social uh, commentary element, of course. But uh, yeah, it was just kind of interesting that this one does that. And it kind of feels like almost like a man on the run type movie where you're you're never really concerned, it but does, it just keeps running. It keeps moving. It, yeah, especially in the last half. Yeah. In a way, I think it feels like a buddy movie and kind of any buddy movie. Like where it ends up being a comedy of errors. Something goes wrong or you think something went wrong. So then you're overcompensating for it and creating more problems by doing so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, no, and because of that, because of your trials and tribulations, you as friends become close and more powerful individually. I think they both. I think both of your points make sense. Like it does. It would be disappointing, but it that's the point after they return the body, and it's kind of fine. It's it's such a strange point in the movie because it for a minute there, it's like the conflict has successfully been averted for like five minutes of the movie and then they have to like introduce a reason why the conflict continues Mm -hmm. and it feels like that is maybe like a draft thing where like they wanted to keep this first part from the first draft but they needed to figure out a way to like keep it going without actually killing the guy yeah sort of thing that kind of reminded me had you guys seen this before no I had, I saw this when, last time I saw this movie, I think I was like five or six years old, and I didn't understand any of the context. <laughs> I, I, I told you. So, so what I will say is that this movie was my first introduction to some of these things as a child. I have a vague memory of realizing what S&M was, and going, oh, some okay. people like to, to hurt each other when they have sex? That's strange. And I don't know like how you'd get year that old, necessarily out of what you see in this movie. <laughs> well, because the guy literally says, you're into S&M? That weird kinky stuff? So, that's what you're into now. Bondage. What's that? Bondage, S&M, sex games. That's right. All of it. I'm into everything. Now get out of here. And he makes it sound like it's horrible, or what he just saw was, like, unbelievable. And for me as a child, I'm like, he's just hanging from the ceiling. It's not that bad, but... 
in the context of the movie, it seemed really bad. But then it like introduced pot. Like I had to ask like my mom, like, why are they so hungry? Why are they giggling? <laughs> now we don't really care about it because it's like whatever. But at the time, it was used as like yeah, a social like ill was... to point at it. It was weird. Yeah, th- apparently it was the this... o- it was the only thing Reagan didn't like about the movie was that oh, they, yeah. they smoked pot. That was the th- only thing he didn't like. I think this movie's. I pretty... find that ironic because I think that this entire thing is like anti Reagan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think this movie is uh, the use of pot. in This movie is not. I don't think it's very judgmental. They have a fun pot party, and it the pot doesn't fucking matter. Like it doesn't make the plot happen like he doesn't put the rat poison in the she doesn't put the rat poison in the coffee because of the pot like it's fine lily tomlin doesn't even really give a shit if her kid is smoking pot like i think it's pretty yeah but it's it's extremely mellow about the topic i'm gonna give borif my point on this because i understand what he's saying I, i i understand what you guys are saying about that um it's not necessarily judgmental in the way of using pot but where it does get judgmental where it gets into this sort of pot panic is the out of these worlds hallucinations that they have, which is not realistic to pot use. Um, I don't know. The, that, that, that's more is... of like a, that's a scare tactic that if you, if you smoke pot, you might see crazy shit, you know? And but that, I don't think that's what's, this doesn't do that like a lot of shit does. Like, I don't no, I get agree. the impression that these women are actually like going into trances and seeing this shit. I think they're having like a daydream that's normal well, pretty much. Right. Well, right. The, the understanding I kind of had with that was the fact that she got the pot from her kid and it was considered a frowned upon thing. So when they started doing that, it was like a camaraderie uh, coming out of that, they could have been yeah. just them drinking or something like that. But it was an interesting choice that it specifically <laughs> That's wasn't. That's what Reagan said. Yeah, it wasn't drinking. It was pot. So there was a specific choice made to say that they were not just kind of going towards, you know, drinking and carousing and getting comfortable with each other. It was over that line. It was like something pushing them beyond the norm. So they would drop their normal, you know, the social like limits they had put on their friendship before then for whatever reason. Yeah, so and I, I, I kind of see what you're saying. I, I would argue why they do it, Borif, uh, is that uh, I think the important lesson of 9 to 5 is that marijuana is a beautiful drug and should absolutely be legal because you never know. It might inspire you to kidnap your boss and run the place better. <laughs> and it should be in the workplace. <laughs> yeah, there you have it. Marijuana, the, the golden key to fix capitalism. Mm-hmm. There you go. As a matter of fact, I smoke pot. I can see what that kind of living has done to you. This movie's very like labor centric as as much as it is uh, lady centric. <laughs> um, but it's it, it's a it's an anti capitalist movie in that it shows how, like we say, you know, it kind of pits coworkers against each other, so no one actually looks at the boss or whatever. Like I feel like Roz is a is an interesting character that we get sort of a hammy nonsense resolution for because she's an interesting sort of like device of how far, you know, everybody's friends with all the ladies. We're all girl power, but not Roz, right? Why? Because she's just too close to the boss. Um, so it, it, it kind of exploits that nature and the way that Violet and Judy sort of thumb their nose at Dora Lee at the beginning part of the movie, because they think it's with the boss, all that stuff is kind of like anti-capitalist. However, I think because of the, of the, shiny glossy sitcomy humor of the last half of the movie it sort of loses its teeth and sort of loses its barbed critiques of capitalism society at large and it just becomes sort of hijinks i think to that point about the resolution of Roz, i think in today's world if you were to make this i think it would kind of end up of 
you would understand that Roz is only doing what she has to do to get by in this environment as well, that it's not that she's some terrible person, just that's what an oppressive work environment does to you. And I think it might go into the more nuanced element of that if you were to make this movie today. Well, it seemed like what she was more there for was kind of to be a heavy foreheart so there'd be more action around the office, but it was also that she was specifically not working with the other women in the office. She was working against the other women in the office and it felt as though she was kind of being othered in the sense that um, she represented women as sort of the stereotypical idea of they're not working together, they're judging each other. Uh, the clickish stuff and right. saying and therefore that the, also the not modern worthy. thing, yeah, and right. saying the like, modern thing was implied- that them working together, like the other three are doing, is the correct way to act. Yeah, I think that gets my point to Borf. Because I absolutely think that it's about like being cooperative, both in a labor sense and in a women's sense. Well, thank you. Yeah, I've I got mean, they so talk about. Uh, I believe there's <laughs> multiple references to teamwork, like at first, kind of sarcastically, but then like a little more truthfully. I I, I do think that perhaps calling this. Um, I think anti-capitalist is almost too strong a word for this movie. I think it's I agree. fine with capitalism. I think it just doesn't like this asshole running the office like a tyrant. But, like, it doesn't have a problem with consolidated as a company. The fucking chairman of the board saves the day at the end. That is and- true. That's that's a, where that's sort of my point, where it sort of loses its thrust of where it could have gone. Yeah. With this sort of more pro-labor stuff. But yeah, it's still the great businessman comes in on his white horse and his white suit and come and saves the day because business is always good. I, I mean, yeah, I hate to, also, I hate to like, say it like this, early... but this reminds me of most boomers. Like they're they're kind of, they, they will speak, <laughs> yeah. they'll speak to the social ills, but then totally be okay with things like Tesla and be like, no, no, he knows what he's doing. Like, no, no. And they also give that, that Tinsworthy guy like, there's a weird aside where he's almost universally in favor of the changes they la- they uh, implement, except for equal pay for some reason. Like he briefly is like, but we got to cut this equal pay shit. And they don't really circle back to that, but it's very strange. Oh my God, I, I didn't even notice that line. That's amazing and typical. Well, Frank, I got to give you credit. You really pulled it off here. Uh-huh. That, uh, that equal pay thing, though, that's uh, that's got to go. Hmm? Oh, yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. It's all right as an incentive, but uh, we don't need to keep on priming the pump. No, sir, I don't think so. There's a part early in the movie where everybody fucking hates Hart except for Roz. Um, and they're talking about it, and it's like, I thought for a moment, like, oh, okay, is this going to be a movie about them unionizing? Because that's the solution to their fucking problem. But it, it, it very much was not. Well, and to be honest, that's why I gave Borf the point about cooperation, because I think that that's what it's sort of getting at, is that if the if the people, if the workers unite, you know, you leverage power, blah, 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 unionize. Mm -hmm. Yet what actually just happens is these three ladies kind of unionize together, but not in a way that is reality for the entire business. the, 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 uh, the, The women had to seize the means of production. To uh, create their circumstance, but they, they right. also just created more of the same circumstance, but slightly nicer. It wasn't a completely egalitarian, let's chop off the heads and start over, but it was very nice that they had I, a better situation. I, according to legend, and by legend, I mean Jane Fonda, uh, she says that what, what fascinated her with the idea of this movie was the idea is that, like, can a company function without boss? 
conferences, sure, but it can definitely not function without secretaries. Um, you know, like that bosses are irrelevant, secretaries are essential. Um, and just kind of playing with that inverse. And again, that's a good opening for a joke in a movie that the movie only kind of flirts with, doesn't really kind of go full on with it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's definitely like uh, mixed in with the um, the sort of social commentary about, uh, you know, female empowerment and workplace dynamics. There is definitely a lot of weird comedy bits or yeah. like, uh, yeah, yeah, scenes yeah. of them shopping for it, ways to, <laughs> to tie this man up. It, it, and, it's definitely a movie that loves its own jokes probably yeah. more than it should. Um, you know, in like like sitcoms, you know, like I Love Lucy. Yeah, yeah but way more forgivably than like, for example, Police Academy. <laughs> well, yeah. the jokes here aren't like repugnantly sexist and racist. <laughs> and when they are, they're the butt of the jokes. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I think that that's crucial too. But also, I mean, think of the time and money they spent on those dream sequences. You know, like doing live action slash animated, even for a, a movie like this, like think of the time and money you spent just to hammer a home a joke, you know, like yeah. that, that and not that great of a joke. So it, one thing, can I just ask you guys this? What is Dabney Coleman's greatest role? And is this it? Uh, you never seen on Golden Pond. I take it. Why am I asking? Of course you have. No, that, to be honest, I can't think of anything else he's in. Give me some movies, Borf. Well, uh, I the one I immediately think of, and it's just because it came out so close to this one, is uh, Cloak and Dagger, which was not very good. He played like a kid's imaginary dad. Imagine how sad the movie is that yeah. Dabney Coleman is your imaginary s- spy dad. <laughs> good work, Davey. You won. You're not dead. No, you never touched me. I guess this thing doesn't stop real bullets. That wasn't fair. You tricked me. You made me kill him. It was a clear case of self-defense. Now, come on, let's go to the airport. I don't want to play anymore! Um... Uh, you've got mail, war games, Tootsie. Like, this film kind of got him put... He's kind of... He got put in its kind of plays the same character. Yeah. He kind of, in Tootsie even, he kind of plays the same character as Frank Hart. Um, He's just kind of a a misogynist, grumpy asshole, basically. Always plays a bully. Uh, But I, I, in this movie, he's fucking fantastic. I think he does a lot of heavy lifting in that he has to play a completely unsympathetic, repugnant person. But he does it with such charm that like you sort of like okay he's he can't be that bad um you know and and the way he does it is very he, he leans into the jokes doesn't mind showing his ass i i full credit to the guy yeah i love the way he plays it but i do yeah. not find it like charming and i don't i did not have that reaction at all of like it's forgivable you no, know, we we you're heard kind you, of like watching him be terrible. Russell, it's okay. We understood completely. You you thought that Dabney Coleman's character was a completely yeah. reasonable boss that he didn't do anything wrong. That the ladies needed to be okay. Role model. I'm ladies gonna, should be I'm able to take a my, joke. Read, well, make sure to read my latest article on the Blaze. In that Dabney <laughs> Coleman in nine to five did nothing wrong. <laughs> um. I, I it's just, your hot takes right here. Actually, while yeah. we're on the topic of him, did you guys find his sexual harassment 
over the top or not? I mean, it's obviously goofy and comical, but what he actually does, considering Me Too stories, like, is it actually hyperbolic or kind of accurate, especially for 1980? Um, I, I'm gonna, I could jump on this grenade if you want me to. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, basically, um, I think. From what I saw in this movie, uh, a lot of the sexual harassment still does happen, um, of course. Uh, I think that's a lot more subtle and probably a lot more insidious than this. Like, this stuff is like, he's really um, putting up billboards. You know he's about to be really aggressively uh, sexist. Um, I would say that they handle it in this movie in the same way that Crash handles racism. (laughs) (laughs) Because you... It's the sort of racism. You literally said yeah. that you would bring that up. It's it's crazy, and I, you can tell me if I'm wrong here. But it's the sort of thing where you're watching it, and you can tell it's sexist, but you know that everybody in the audience will go, "That's sexist." No one's gonna be yeah. like, "Oh, I don't know about that." Oh yeah, but they're all like, "That's oh, sexist." Yeah. yeah, like it's it's. So what you're talking about is like, there's a genre of movie. There are movies that are about racism, but they're made for white people, like yeah. The Help or Crash. Yeah. Where, like, the racists are so overt in their racism that it's like the white people who might who are watching who are who might themselves be a bit racist are like, I'm not that racist. I'm mm-hmm. not so as racist as not racist. Yeah. I'm yeah. So they can racist, totally absolve racist. themselves. Yeah. yeah. So I 100 percent agree. And I actually think that that is its own subtle form of oppression, because then when people in the workplace deal with more subtle sexism, they're like, oh, well, at least I'm not being chased around my desk by my boss. Yeah. I guess it's fine. And I won't say anything, you know. When Sarah, when we were watching it, we thought of the Me Too movement, you know, and you hear the horror yeah. stories of like Weinstein mm-hmm. or like Louis C.K. And that was probably a little worse than Frank Hart, probably. So, like, oh, I, sure. I, 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 think- I mean, I'm kind of of two minds about it. Is is Dabney Coleman being subtle or is he a little too on the nose? I think um, that Dabney Coleman's character, I think his fiefdom is a little too small to be as obvious as he is. But somebody with a little more power probably could, could and has and do do this kind of shit i mean he does take her on a work trip to an event that doesn't exist just to like get her out of town with him to me that's pretty severe and then yeah. by the way she ends up apologizing for it oh i'm sorry sir next time i'll just have to make sure the event really is happening it's strange that they don't deal with that more directly it's like even in the scene where she was actually being sexually harassed they kept it like light and airy and she just hog ties the guy like she gets mad but not like <laughs> they never get like a real rage vitriol it's it's like a very mild thing and then she just kind of hog ties him in that like old timey like movie way it's like she didn't really assault him well, and, then and tie as she him. put it that's just the way she was raised yeah apparently the way she was raised is just totally allowed to be you know be yeah. totally harassed at a yeah, a nearly violent way. I mean, he's like forcing himself on yeah. top of her. Do we think that that's inaccurate, though, that there are women who throughout their lives have just gotten used to it, you know, and just like I'm sure there's just sort of yeah. let it roll off. I mean, I think Boris got a good point that like the fact that she seems to be blissfully almost oblivious in the beginning up until she finds out that. Frank Hart has been spreading rumors that they've been sleeping together. Does she fucking lose it? But I mean, it's fairly obvious what 
Frank Hart is doing to Dora Lee even before you learn that. So, um, so I sort of see your point, but uh, I, I also think that it's the time and the place where, you know, women are just sort of, yeah, yeah, boys will be boys. Well, let me ask you what the coding uh, is on yeah, that. I, do you think it's actually the time or do you think it, that it's because she's Southern? That she's just so sweet and she's so nice to everybody that she doesn't recognize when people are being like overly aggressively personal and touchy. Like I think in the South they're a lot more obvious about it, and she's a, she was she's from a very big family. Oh, I'm going Dolly Parton here, but not no. I mean, like, I mean uh, the character. Uh, That's what I'm saying. The character, it's like her I function mean, in the story. Like what? Maybe, what is her kind I mean, of coding on that because it seems yeah. weird that she's the only one who doesn't yeah, understand she's, that it's actually she, The character herself is actually married as well. You know, yeah. married and and she's actually settled down as well. He's just like a country music star or whatever, apparently, and she's doing this to pay the bills. Um. So I, I don't really know it, the characters makes it seem like that it was very common to have it, but also just coming from the South. I mean, they're a little bit more polite, but not really polite. You know, it's that Southern polite. You know what I mean? Like they're there. There's a line in Fargo that I really like that, you know, everybody's really nice. No, pretty unfriendly, actually. Like you're doing me a favor. Um, and that's sort of how I view Southern sexism. <laughs> Like they're doing you a favor. Well, Holly, darling, don't you get look nice and pretty, you know? Right. I mean, it's kind of the idea yeah. of just smile and take it. And I think yeah, that it's very common of women and more common back then and more common in conservative Southern places. So, yeah, I, I think a lot of it probably has to do with, like she says, the way I was raised. As long as we keep this private between you and me, I'll handle your sexual advances. I won't let it get out of hand because I'm married. But now that you told the other women, other people in the office, it being public changes everything. It's all about keeping it hush-hush. One way to determine how the movie thinks about this and its severity is, and her perception of the severity is, how the movie responds to it. And the movie does make some of these scenes comedic. I don't. That's another thing that would be very different today. Like, along with the office shooting thing, I don't think these scenes would be done the same way. So I think in the movie's parlance, like, it's bad... But it's not as bad as we would call it. Like, today, this shit would be way fucking more seriously treated. So I think the movie itself is like, what an asshole, but not like, what a fucking criminal this guy is. Right. Not like, yeah. yeah. Um. So I think that probably belies the movie's opinion, probably relates to hers in that way, which is like, the severity for her is not what we in the tw- in 2021 would would have. And I will say, Doralee doesn't seem particularly unintelligent in the other scenes. His wife, Hart's wife, seems very dumb. But yes. Doralee yeah. doesn't seem unintelligent. Roz herself also seems remarkably gullible. Because yeah. um, it does seem like Lily Tomlin has sort of kept Roz at bay by just sort of like making her spin her wheels all the time. Judy, do you see Mr. Hart? Uh, yes. Well, stop him. Mr. Hart? Mr. Hart? Mr. Hart? Oh, Mr. Oh, you just missed him. Mm. You could tell it's it's more or less a passion project for Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda. Like, these two really wanted to work together and really had a good time working together. And apparently, Dolly Parton was, they had their sights on her early. They, they wanted it to be Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton would only agree to do the movie if she did the theme song. Uh, and... 
I don't think she regrets that decision because uh, it was a huge hit. Um, yeah. and, and rightfully so. It's, it's a good song. Yeah, I think the song has endured more strongly than the movie. So, like, when Jane Fonda was coming out with this, if she couldn't get Lily Tomlin or Dolly Parton, the backup plan was Carol Burnett for Lily Tomlin's character, which makes sense. And uh, and Margaret was supposed to play Dora Lee, hmm. uh, which that would work, but I don't think it would have been successful unless you had Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton, for some reason, is the sprinkling the sprinkles on this cupcake. Like, she is what pushes the movie, movie over. I mean, she was loved by everybody. She was also, like, an incredibly huge sex symbol. It's hard to, like, everybody thinks of, like, Britney Spears and things like that now. But at the time, it was like, oh, my God, this this Dolly Parton lady can do anything she wants in any media she wants and everyone wants it. Well, so, (laughs) yeah, I mean. I think Britney Spears is also like a little past yeah, like prime probably. sex symbol time yeah, at this point. Yeah, yeah, you're kind of showing your age. A- area, too, right? Ariana Grande? I don't know what the young ones are uh, doing now. Dolly Parton in specific, I think, is, um, you know, because she's a very, before this movie, very prolific singer-songwriter in country music scene. Yeah. This is the movie that sort of introduced her to like kind of not just country Western fans. This was more for like mainstream America. Nine to five, the song was one of the first ones that really kind of kind of cemented her place as an American icon. I'd say even today, she's far more iconic now, probably because she's just lived so long, but also somebody, I can't remember who wrote this. I can't remember where I read this, but it, it summed it up pretty beautifully. Dolly Parton's one of those artists who's never had to really wholly reinvent herself. She just has chosen strategic times to reintroduce herself. Um, she's always been this persona of Dolly Parton. And I think that Part of that is, is that, like you said, Chris, like Dolly Parton being a sex symbol, part of country music and in general is myth building and building the sort of like myth around your persona that you're playing. It's similar in hip hop. And I think that Dolly Parton kind of taking this role, uh, it's, it's like it was written for her. It's almost too perfect. You know, like everybody ogles Dolly Parton. I, I, I guarantee it. It's like she's like... And what this movie kind of turns on its head is that we always assume that she was asking for and that this movie sort of like plays that plays against that. Right. Well, I mean, the other two characters in the movie, we have Lily Tomlin is a widow with four kids. So she's single and Judy is recently divorced. So in a way, them being single women is already kind of looked down on in society the only thing dora lee does wrong is that she is a attractive woman that's it and yet she almost gets it worse than the other two in terms of others judgment yeah they uh the Um, that was a weird thing with that time period like i think it was that everybody uh i mean these were like baby boomer kids so like they went through the 60s their marriages broke up and then they had the 1950s marriages of their parents to compare it to and it was very judgmental so yeah i definitely my mom had a big thing with that too and i'm sure if any of you had to deal with like parents who were either divorced or just not together it was like a whole genre in the 80s of movies that were all about that like steven spielberg's whole thing was just that just family's breaking up yeah and i also think it's funny that it's it's you know jane fonda pointing a gun at a screen you know in the era of reagan just that i mean just to make yeah apparently very few hanoi jane protests for this movie yeah even even they stayed home a little bit i was gonna ask like how recent was the hanoi jane thing because i think that was like during the early 70s right or when did that happen yeah it wasn't that recent but okay it it, uh 70 it was 
It's under Nixon, so like 71, 72. Okay, um, so that'd be about a decade. So yeah, plus. I mean, but that can that that can's that can was has been following her to this day. Like it it, yeah. it still follows her. And and luckily Jane Fonda is in a position where she doesn't give a shit. Um and and she almost doesn't give a shit for this movie. However, you do get the sense that this movie was kind of scaled back as far as like in your face, you know, like kind of hardcore progressive advocacy kind of thing. It was kind of scaled back. Yeah. Well, and I think that's almost a good thing. It's a very progressive message, but made in a way that non-progressives could enjoy it and maybe get something out of it, maybe. Okay. So so here's the and question. And by the way, I don't think Jane Fonda regrets her image at all. That woman is still out there getting arrested. <laughs> and I also think that uh, time has uh, been a friend to Jane Fonda's views and stances in uh, in a lot of ways. I think and she... Yeah, especially regarding yeah. the Vietnam War. Yeah, I, I right. I think she kind of won so, that argument. Uh, so what was the, uh, what was the thing that drove... drove that made you want to pick this particular movie? Like, what was the thing with this one, Sarah, where you're like, that's the one? Well, it actually was because everyone's so loving Dolly Parton right now. (laughs) And so to me, this is a reason why I love Dolly Parton and why I think she deserves so many accolades. And that just in combination with it being, as Zach described earlier, just a very Sarah movie, a comedy of that era. So it seemed to fit. And I actually think it holds up pretty well, considering that it is all about social commentary and it's literally 50 years old. Holds Uh, up pretty good. 40. 40, I'm sorry. 40 years old. Ooh, I'm aging all of us. We've never we've never been good at math on this podcast. It's okay. You're right. You're a good. (laughs) But 40 years, you know, that's a long time. And I think the message holds up pretty good. For about a half second, I was completely willing to accept that it was 50 years old and that I was just ancient and had forgotten the last 10 years. I was completely on board for that. As a matter of fact, I smoke pot. I can see what that kind of living has done to you. Sarah kind of like poured over what movies she would want to watch. So it came down to two movies. I suggested It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World. And I think because I suggested that, she chose this movie as well. Realizing that the other option was four hours long, I understand why this one was picked. And I I agree. And thank you for doing that. You're welcome, guys. You're welcome. The problem. That's uh, part of why I wanted her to pick it. The unfortunate thing is no matter who wins this round, all three of us are planning to suggest the Snyder Cut uh, for next week. (laughs) So settle in for four hours. No matter who wins. Zach, why don't we start with you since you started us off on this adventure and four-star trapped the significant others, not just us. Mm, okay. Uh, yeah, so I don't know. This is like, like I said at the beginning, this is a movie movie. This is a movie. <laughs> this is a hangover Sunday-ass movie that you watch when you're like, I can't use my brain today. I had 18 shots of tequila last night. And I want smoked a little too much pot. <laughs> yeah, I had, a, I had a girl's pot party last night. We shared our our fantasies about killing the boss. I had a, I can't think today. I just want to put something on that's enjoyable, but you know, fun and not you know inoffensive and not taxing, but fun. Like I, that sounds derogatory, but it's not inherently derogatory. Um, a lot of times, that's just what you want to what you're in the mood for. It's kind of like Groundhog Day. 
it's a feel right. good. It's a feel good. You're yeah, not really challenged in the ways that hurt you. You're challenged in the ways that make you think you're going to be a better, better person afterwards for at least a little while while you remember the movie. Yeah, you want to sit on the couch for two hours and not think too hard and have a decent time. Yeah. That's what you want. That's what you get. I mean, you know, it's 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 not going to be your favorite movie of all time, but it's going to be an enjoyable experience. And that's what this movie is. So there you go. Fair enough. Um, my final thoughts are that I really enjoyed being able to go back and revisit a movie that in my childhood introduced so many uncomfortable conversations <laughs> with my mother. Because uh, I was literally six or seven when I saw this. So I had to ask about every topic in this that was an adult topic. And because it was about yuppies who were like middle-aged, working-class people... The level of their lives crossing over with me at six or seven was almost nothing. So it was like listening to people talk about the space station. Like, ooh, they're at a job. <laughs> they're a boss. There's ladies that are bosses at the job. And it seemed like a huge deal. Uh, and I remember watching this one a lot as a child. And I don't remember why, but I think it had everything to do with the murder scene. I think the scenes in which they were chasing Dabney Coleman, I thought were hilarious as a child. And I kept watching it again and again because of those. So I really appreciated being able to see this as an adult. Uh, I guess at around the same age as the main characters now? They might be younger than me. I am a little closer to death. So thank you. Great. <laughs> um, I said this earlier. It's clearly Fonda wanted to make this movie. You know, this was her idea and pulling in Lily Tomlin was a stroke of genius because those two are still friends and they're still working together. Um, Lily Tomlin still at the time, even in the late 70s, early 80s, was the, the female equivalent to Steve Martin as far as kind of edgy comedy. Um, and Dolly Parton being Dolly Parton, uh, already kind of already a legend. Um it's and Dabney Coleman. I think this movie is perfectly cast. I think that this movie, uh, the part is basically written for Dolly Parton. Dabney Coleman does a very great job of donning the monster suit and making it believable while still entertaining, while not making me want to bash him in the head. But at least know that in the movie he's going to get his comeuppance in a you know hilarity that ensues. I think that this movie could have been great if they chose not to do the sort of sugar-coated swell of uh, just sitcom situational humor. Um, I, I and, think that if I, it was a little darker, if they had gone the darker direction but still made it a comedy, I do think it would probably be a bit of a better movie. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's not like this movie wasn't successful. I mean, it's yeah. still... I mean, it was very, made a lot of money. The the SOG won an Oscar. Like, it, it, it was a pretty successful movie. Um and and I'm glad that they've never uh, in 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 considering the time period it was made. Uh, although attempts have been made, they made a TV show and everything. This, they the, the 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 attempt to franchise this has not been successful. And I think that uh, just don't just don't franchise it. Maybe maybe just maybe you should just stand how it is and and don't. There is a musical of this, isn't there? Not I think That's it's fine. fairly yeah. popular. Yeah, yeah. Alice and Janie, I think, even won a Tony for playing Lily Tomlin's character. There is uh, a musical. And Dolly Parton, of course, came worked on it as well. So Yeah. And yeah. If she's writing the music, then fuck yeah. I mean Well, the one thing we should say here though is with the television series, it had eighty five episodes. So I believe that was more That's than not the nothing. first That's wow. a, more than the first run of Star Trek. So this could have been the open yeah. of an entire next generation That's of true. nine to fivers. Right. But less 
than the Police Academy cartoon. So, yes. I'm just saying, his attempts to, to, to franchise it, to, to, its contemporaries did a much better job. So just don't franchise it. Uh, Sarah, nine to five. Working nine to five. No, no, we're okay. not doing that. Sorry. Sorry, sorry. Okay, uh, no, it, it, it is a feel-good movie, and that's why I chose it. I do think that it's fun that it's your basic buddy workplace comedy slapsticky thing but it has that element of the dark humor and obviously comments on society so i think that that's kind of hard to do that all in one and i think it actually does a pretty good job of achieving all three of those uh but like boris said for me growing up watching this movie it was it was because of certain little scenes that i thought were hilarious as a kid for me it was the stealing the body in the car, uh, my favorite line, maybe of all time, is would you two quit arguing and think about where we can get some cement? <laughs> I, I just, that just killed me as a kid. I don't know. So I just think it's a fun movie that holds up well after 40 years. And I'm glad yeah. that you guys enjoyed it and got to watch a classic for me. Well, uh, uh, one last parting thought. The true... Um person who put the action of this movie in motion was whoever brilliantly decided to put the identically colored box of rat poison next to <laughs> the artificial sweetener in the same cabinet. Whoever that was, whichever employee did that is truly the person who we can blame for this I, entire film. And I certainly hope Ralph Nader has said something about this by this point. I certainly yeah. hope that dangerous packaging groups are saying something about this. So, I guess we're at the fun part of the movie trap, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, lady and gentlemen. Uh, we have a quick rundown of the points. So, Borf divvied out all of his bonus points and ended up with a whopping 14 points to uh, divvy up at final voting. I gave away all my bonus points and I ended up with 11 points. Incorrect. Oh. Because I'm giving you, in the name of equality and teamwork, <laughs> I'm giving you... Two. That's right. My remaining right. two points. Uh, I still have the most, but you know, oh, I, I like. I love that I have created a little system of cooperation, boys. Let's unionize. I, but I, like nine to five, Zach's gonna take all the credit, and he's gonna get the promotion. So, well, I sorry. also, I still also have the most points. Yeah. So I'm also, I'm also cynical enough to say, I bet it's to make him have to redo his math. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. um, okay, so that puts me at 13 points since I got the two pity points from Zach. I've been doing good on the pity points this round. Um, Zach has 15 points to divvy out and now no more bonus points. And Sarah gave her bonus point to Chris Bora. So the way this is divvies out. So Bora, you have 14. I have 13. Zach has 15. Uh, first pick was Shannon Camp pick. And first of all, before we get to the voting, shout out to the ladies for joining us on this, on our little adventure. Um, I want to thank Shannon and Sarah and the Sarah's Hill and Maloff and Shannon Camp. Thank you so much for joining us on our uh, lofty adventure. Um, so uh, let's open it up with the voting. First up, Bugsy Malone. Boref, what do you got? I gave Bugsy Malone a four. All right, I gave Bugsy Malone a three. All right. Zach, what do you got? I gave it a six. All right, Borf. Communion. Christopher Walken half naked. I gave a half naked Christopher Walken a five. 
and drew my version of a little alien head. For anyone who's not <laughs> on this. And I'm 90% sure I spelled the word communion correctly. Well, take your word for it. Uh, I gave communion a three. All right, Mr. Powers, what do you give communion? I gave communion a two. I debated a three, uh, but I, I settled, settled on a two. Mm, makes sense. Okay. Nine to five. Sarah, you want to cover your ears? You can, you, okay. All right. Boraf, nine to five. What you got? I gave nine to what five are you in? a five. Nine to five, a five. <laughs> All righty. All righty. I gave nine to five a seven. I don't care what anybody says. And I gave nine. I split the difference between nine and five and also gave it a <laughs> gave seven. Gave it a seven. <laughs> All righty. Makes it the winner if I'm not 14, mistaken. 19 to nine to five, 10 to communion. And 13 to Bugsy Malone. So yes, Sarah, you did it. I I won something because of you, as always. That's uh, it's, All right. It's so now what's it going to be? Cassavetti's movies? Yeah, that's right. No, it's going to be... Uh, yeah, right. I really did. Uh, Dabney, uh, Dabney Coleman movies from 1982 to 1983. It is kind of perfect that you, my husband, gets the credit for my success, though. That's, that's very accurate, actually. I think that's very appropriate. It's, it's poetic. Fonda and Tomlin will be proud. Yeah. Um, so I thought about this, especially I know that my reputation uh, precedes me with the peck and paw round. Um, but this time I'm going to do something uh, a little different and I think going to trap all of us in many different things. And maybe, maybe it's give... the Snyder cut. You could say it. All yeah, right. that's right. Yeah, it's going to be each of us takes an episode. Um, so this might even give uh, our our confusing knowledge to pour a, a chance to broaden his horizons a little bit. Um, I The theme this time is going to be ubiquitous movies that you have not seen. I'm talking movies that are so ingrained into the cultural zeitgeist that it is insane that you have not seen this movie. For my pick, I am choosing Goodwill Hunting. Okay. I've never seen that movie. I do not care for Gus Van Sant, <laughs> uh, but I like Robin Williams and I guess Ben Affleck in the one or two scripts that I've seen him write is okay. Uh, so I'm doing Goodwill Hunting. That's uh, that's right. what it is. So yeah. movies that are ubiquitous that you have not seen. Well, we'll see how this works All out right. because I'm going to go bold on this, suggesting early that you might not notice that Gus Van Sant directed it. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go. Help me. I'm going to go so far as to say it might be the chalk pick for Gus Van Sant. If you're ever okay. in a challenge, it is the safest, least like elephant you can pick from that guy's okay, overall. That movie fucking sucked. Yeah. Um, I hated that movie. So, yeah, uh, Goodwill Hunting, you know, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Rob Williams. Everybody likes that movie. Yeah. 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 See, I know that. I know that much. I know enough about the movie to probably fake my way through a quiz on that movie, but like, I've never actually seen it. So, so if that gives you any context of what the idea of the theme is, that's the, sure. that's the archetype. So you've seen, you haven't seen this one. Let me ask quickly, so we, and then we'll allow you to jump out. Have you seen the references to how you like them apples? Like, did you see? Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. In, in like, Jay and Silent Bomb. Yeah, you betcha. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've seen it referenced. I've seen it Saturday Night Live when it came out. Like, yeah, I, I, I know all about it. Okay. It, it, anyway, uh, I, it, you know, like, it's like Forrest Gump, right? You know the box of chocolate blinds, but if even you'd know that without even seeing the movie. Sure. Anyway, Absolutely. So yeah, if that gives you guys some sort of uh, 
framework to work with. So I will be choosing this movie and then Zach will choose and then Borf will choose and we'll all do it all over again. Um, okay. So yeah, uh, that was fun. This was a fun uh, adventure to bring in our 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 better halves, really, uh, to to kind of sucker us into a couple of movies. Oh. Um, yeah. This next round is good. To, it's going to be another kind of blind item. Yeah. Round. Yeah. So yeah. It'll be hard yeah. to juke the stats on this but one. I'm exactly. For, That's but I, so I, I don't want to hear any more bitching about the wild bunch. But I am out for blood on this one because it's going to make it, I think, the third I, one I haven't see, actually he, he, won. So yeah, I might true. come Boris back. Yeah, that's true. going to come out. Yeah. Yeah. But I, then, or, you know, anyway, I I was so nervous about this scene, Borf, because you're like, well, I haven't seen, uh, you know, this Ozu's uh, first movie from 1919. I think we should sit down to that. Oh, well, I mean, we're obviously going to sit down and watch uh, Birth of a Nation. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> if, I, if I spared you through It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World, you're definitely going to spare me through that fucking You know, movie. the cinematic language of Triumph of the Will is ubiquitous. <laughs> 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 yep, yep. So, tune in to whatever we've run the gamut as far as what could be shown. Uh, so, uh, I guess now's a good time to wrap up. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you guys so much. It was really fun. Thanks for being All right. Uh, and for my co host, Chris Boroff. Bye, Acondios. Say goodnight, Gracie. And for Zach Powers. Uh,. Pour yourself a cup of ambition, I guess. I'm Russell Carlson, and thank you for joining the Movie Trap. See you next time. I oh, need- uh, and also, it's the Movie Trap Promise. Oh, yes. Let's, <laughs> let's never forget. It's the Movie Trap Promise. Diane Ladd is too young to be Chevy Chase's mom. Violet, we're not criminal. You're not a criminal. It was an accident. Well, we're criminals now. We've just stolen a corpse from a hospital. That sounds like criminal to we'll me. We'll take it back. We'll just turn around and take it back. Oh, we'll get caught if we go back now. You think they're going to listen to us? Would you two please stop arguing and think about where we can lay our hands on some cement? <laughs>